Genesis chapter 29 and 30. Somebody asked me a while back why I was preaching through Jacob, Jacob's life, and they said I'd never heard a preacher preach through the life of Jacob. And my answer to that is, well, number one, all of God's Word is inspired, amen? And so there's something there that's profitable to us. And then number two, very few of us really know our Old Testament very well. And uh, not a lot of time is spent in the Old Testament, so we fail to see its connection to the gospel, which comes in the New Testament. Uh, actually, the gospel runs the whole course of Old and New Testament, but uh, when we learn to read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus and through the lens of the gospel, we can see how the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So that's my aim in preaching through the life of Jacob. Chapters 29 and 30 in the book of Genesis, the title of our message here today is Battle of the Brides. Now, I once heard about an old Indian chief who called all the men of the village into his big tent. The chief did not like what he was seeing taking place among his menfolk. And so as the men gathered under his big teepee, he said, I don't see any more real men in this tribe anymore. You cowards are being ruled by your wives. And so to make a demonstration, the Indian chief said, I want all of the men who think that their wives boss them around to get up and walk over to the other side near the entrance of the tent. And lo and behold, all of those men stood up and they walked over. But there was one little brave, one brave stood proudly in the middle of the chief's big tent there all alone. And the chief took note of the boldness of this young brave who had just been married, by the way. And he called all the men over and he said, Look, look right here, this brave, at least we have one real man left in this tribe. And the chief asked the brave, he said, Please, son, share with us and tell these cowards what your secret is. How are you the boss at home? And the young brave kind of looked sheepishly and he gulped a big one and then he said, Well, chief, when I left my TP this morning, my wife said to me, Husband, never follow the crowd. <laughs> never follow the crowd. And so I tell that story uh, to ask you the question, how many real men do we have in the church today? No, just kidding. Don't, don't stand up. Don't answer that. But that story applies today to Genesis 29 and 30 because when you look in the family life of Jacob and you study what happened underneath his tent, you begin to wonder very quickly who is the real boss. Uh, Jacob is supposed to be the man of the house, but his attention and his affection uh, now quickly become a tug of war between two battling brides, Rachel and Leah. Sisters, might I remind you. In fact, let's do a little catch up here. For those of you just joining us after a while or missing a few weeks, the backstory is that Jacob has been duped by Laban. Jacob's heart went to Rachel. He wanted to marry Rachel first. She was the prettier of the sisters, according to him. And his heart went out for her, and so he pledged his love that he would work seven years to get Rachel. But of course, he was bamboozled by the dad, Laban. 
And on the night of the wedding, there was a great switch that took place. Jacob ends up getting the other sister, Leah. And then a deal has to be worked out where Jacob will work seven more years to get the hand of Rachel. And so after 14 years, Jacob now has two wives, both of them sisters. Rachel is the beloved. Leah is the one who tags along. And this family dynamic now that we see in Genesis 29 and 30 is a plot that is fit for a soap opera, is it not? I mean, this passage has about everything you could imagine going on in a family. There's polygamy, there's discord, there's jealousy, there's competition, there's infertility. Why, there's more drama going on in this family than there is in a Hallmark movie. And at the heart of this dysfunctional family, here are two women that are struggling mightily for identity. Really want to understand the struggle, the battle of the brides that takes place between Rachel and Leah. You need to understand that you have two women wanting to know who they really are. Now, this is an important passage in the book of Genesis because not only do we see this battle take place, but this is the story of how the nation of Israel comes into being. This is where Jacob's 12 sons come from who will in turn go to be the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And so as the Jewish people read this story, they certainly could not boast of their origin. Because when you read the dumpster fire family that they came from, you see that this was a mess. But how many of you know that God specializes in a mess? God is working to bring about through His sovereign plan Uh, Through the failures and the sins of these broken people, He's working to bring about a Redeemer. And that's God's ultimate goal through all of this. So as we look today at the battle of the brides, I want you to notice, number one, the rejection of Leah. The rejection of Leah. And we will begin in chapter 29 and verse 31. Now, we are introduced to the first of these two desperate housewives, Leah who is hungry for the love of Jacob. Notice what verse 31 says. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now, you can easily begin to pity Leah in this story because the sting of unrequited love has pierced her heart many times. In so many ways, I would say that Leah is the girl that nobody really wanted. I know that sounds harsh, but that's just the reality when you read the story. Her father Laban robbed her of the chance of being married to a man who would actually love her for who she was. And in Jacob's eyes, this girl Leah would never measure up, no matter what she did, to the more beautiful sister, Rachel, whom he loved. Now, if you want to understand Leah, she is a woman who desperately wants to be loved and noticed and valued by her husband. That's who she is in the core of her being. And her struggle for significance is wrapped up in childbearing because here's her mode of thinking. If I can give my husband Jacob heirs, if I can give him children, then he will see my true worth and my true value and he will love me. Now, how many of you notice already the inherent flaw in that kind of approach to love? In other words, she's thinking, I'll be loved based on what I can do, not on who I am. And there's a lot of women who begin a relationship that way. 
They offer themselves to the man thinking if I give him everything he wants, then he'll love me. And if you start off with a relationship that way, you get the cart before the horse and it's a recipe for disaster. Now we read in the Bible that God graciously opens up her womb first. But Rachel's remain closed. And Leah is then blessed. And she's blessed with four sons, which kind of become the consolation in the depths of her deep rejection and heartache that she lives in. Now, as we're going to read through here, verse 32 through 35, we're going to see the four sons that come from Leah and the names given to them. And there's an interesting play on words in this passage because with each boy that comes and a name given, you get a window into the soul of Leah. You're going to see a a picture of her emotional and her spiritual life. And each one of Leah's sons are given a name that, yes, represents her happiness as a mother, but also her continued pain as a second-class wife. So notice this. Verse 32, the first son to be born is Reuben. The Bible says, When Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now, watch this, my husband will love me. What a tragic verse. By this name, Reuben, that she gives the first son, Leah is saying, hey, now that I have given Jacob a son, he'll notice me. He'll see my value. He will love me. But notice what happens. Another son comes along, verse 33. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Now, the name Simeon means hear or listen. And so this name suggests that God has heard her cry, that God is paying attention to her prayer. And surely, now that she's given Jacob two sons, he'll have an open ear to hear her. But Jacob was deaf. Because verse 34 It tells us more about her pain as she gives a third son named Levi. Verse 34, again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now, this time my husband will be attached to me because I born him three sons, and therefore his name is called Levi. And so Leah thinks that by giving Jacob three sons, oh, this man is now going to be emotionally attached to me. But in this case, of course, the third time is not the charm. And how many women live in a shadow of defeat just like this? Trying and trying and trying to please somebody to win their love so that they will see valued, so that they will be secure, so that they will be emotionally upheld. And it seems like nothing works in the relationship. Fourth son comes along. His name is Judah. Underline that one. That one's very important. Verse 35 says, And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. What a difference. Therefore she called his name Judah, and she ceased bearing. Now Judah's name means praise. And it seems as if with this boy, that now Leah has come to terms with her situation in life. She is saying with the naming of this son, Hey, instead of sulking and being in sorrow over the unresponsiveness of my husband, I'm going to praise God in the midst of my heartache. And so she's going to praise God for the blessing of having four sons now. Finally, you begin to see Leah is having an awakening. She is understanding her identity in God. By this point, 
I think that she's accepted that Jacob was not going to love her the way that she wanted. But in absence of that, she has the Lord's blessing. And I think with this she's saying, or what God is saying to her is, Hey, Leah, I see you down there. I understand your struggle. I love you. Isn't that enough? So Leah is becoming content, I believe, with God being her source. God being her husband. And so the Bible says that her womb is closed up for a time. Now, just by way of married people, there are two pertinent applications that I can make just from this passage right here. And the first is to the men. Don't worry, men, I'm not picking on you. We'll get to the women here in a little bit. But first is to the men. Guys, your wife, and I'm preaching to myself, your wife desperately needs your constant love and affirmation. There are so many marriages that have grown cold and stale because the man has become emotionally distant and he stopped pursuing the heart of his wife. Uh, Howard Hendricks, who was a great Bible teacher, back in the 1960s and 70s when Tom Landry was the coach of the Dallas Cowboys, a man named Howard Hendricks was the team a chaplain. And oftentimes, uh, Howard Hendricks wrote about his experience of trying to pastor these big gridiron greats, these you know, grueling, burly guys who beat the daylights out of each other every Sunday. Howard Hendricks tells a story that one time he went into the Cowboys locker room and he noticed that there was a big 350-pound offensive guard, a mountain of a man, sulking in the back of the locker room. And Dr. Howard Hendricks learned that this player was having marital problems. And so he took him aside for some counseling. And at some point during their session, Dr. Hendricks uh, was asking the old boy, he said, so tell me about your relationship with your wife. Uh, Do you love her? Do you support her? Do you encourage her? Those kinds of things. He asked her the question. He said, do you ever tell your wife that you love her? And the giant sort of hemmed and hauled around. He said, Pastor, he said, I told her that I loved her on our wedding day and it stands until I decide to change it. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. We might chuckle at that, but there's a lot of marriages that have grown cold like that. It's just two ships passing in the night. And men, we have to love and pursue the heart of our wife. We have to continually uh, approach her and show her that She is valued and loved and appreciated and encouraged. If you don't, she'll retreat into a shell of pain and hurt and she'll shut down. And the whole love and respect cycle then gets thrown into a problem. You have to learn the love language of that woman and keep her tank filled up. And I'm not telling you I'm an expert at it, but praise God, I think I'm a little bit better at it today than when we first started. Another application here is for the women. Because a lot of women find themselves in a difficult marriage like Leah. They find themselves searching for identity and security, and they're not getting it from their husband. Their husband is deadbeat, won't come to church with them. Husband has no spiritual wherewithal within him. He's not the spiritual leader. And so there are so many women who are living in a difficult marriage, and they are exacerbated. They're like Leah. They don't know what to do. Here's what I think this passage would counsel us in this regard. Christ wants you to know, wife... That He is enough for you. And that if you are loved by Almighty God, that love is enough, even if you don't get it from a man. You see, notice this situation. God did not change the heart of Jacob. 
Not at this point at least. But he did start to change the heart of Leah in the midst of this situation. And Leah said, I'm making the choice to rejoice when Judah came along. Wife out there, if you are loved and cherished by God, that has to be your source. That has to be your strength. That has to be where your identity comes from, not the love of some man or what you can give to him that will think will validate you. So we see the rejection of Leah. Then our text moves on. Number two, the resentment of Rachel. The resentment of Rachel. Now, Rachel has been lurking, if you will, in the background this whole time. And she grows green with envy. Notice verse 1, chapter 30, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children or else I shall die. Verse 2, and Jacob Anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Notice here that while her sister is hungry for Jacob's love and has all the sons, here is Rachel, she has Jacob's love and none of the sons. And in her frustration, she goes to Jacob, and Rachel just erupts on him, verse 1, Why can't you give me a baby? As if... Old boy Jacob could just flip a switch, right, and make it happen. So you see this explosion of fighting. And how many of you, as you read that, if you're being honest and if you've been married long enough, you can read that and you say, oh, I, I identify completely with that. You've been in that kind of spat before? The woman comes to the man with a problem. Immediately, what do we as guys do? We go into fix-it mode. I'm Mr. Fix-it. I can rescue my bride out of any problem that she's in. Meanwhile, the woman doesn't really want the problem fixed. It may not even be a problem you can fix. What she really wants is the husband to sit down and commiserate with her, ask her questions, draw out from her all the emotional pain and turmoil that she's in. The guy's tired. He doesn't want to talk because he's worked all day. You never talk to me. And it starts like that, negativity and sparks. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, brother, you're sleeping on the couch and she's giving you the silent treatment. Don't lie. I know you've been there before. Amen. Amen. But notice how they resolve this. They really don't. But in order to circumvent her barrenness, Rachel goes back into the past and pulls an old play from Sarah's book. Notice verse 3. Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. Now, like I said, we saw this earlier on in Genesis, Sarah and Abraham. So what Rachel does is she takes her handmaiden Bilhah, offers her to Jacob as a surrogate mother. You need to know that this was common practice in this ancient day. It was legal, but it showed a real lack of faith in God, didn't it? And we get the sense that Jacob just goes along with the plan because old Jake, if you know him, he's the classic passive male. He shows no spiritual leadership at all in his family. And perhaps Rachel is thinking this. Maybe she feared that she would lose Jacob's love if she didn't start producing some heirs like Leah. And so she's operating out of panic, out of fear, and out of envy. 
And boy, you can make some mistakes when that's your operating system starting off. Now, it's also noticeable that when Rebecca earlier on, when Rebecca came to Isaac with her barrenness in Genesis 25 and verse 21, the Bible says that Isaac went before the Lord and prayed on behalf of his wife and God opened up her womb. Jacob doesn't do that, does he? He just goes right along with the plan. He resorts to another scheme. Because that's what he is. He's a schemer. Now, two sons come from Bilhah. And the origin of these names, again, say a lot about the heart of Rachel. Because she's the one who names them. Notice the first verse 4. And so... She gave him to her servant Bilhah, his wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God has judged me and has heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. If you do a little research, you figure out that that name Dan means vindicated. In other words, you can see what Rachel is saying. She has falsely assumed, ha, God is pleased with me. I've been vindicated. I've got a son by trickery. This is Rachel's way, by the way, of getting back at Leah. That's what this is all about. And then notice verse 7 and 8. Another son comes along. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. And so she called in the name Nephthali. Or Nephthali. And that name means wrestling. So, just as Jacob wrestled with Esau in the womb, now we have a wrestling match, a battle of the brides between Rachel and Leah, and this is how Rachel sees herself in a battle for supremacy in the home. Now, you think it couldn't get any worse. Oh, but just keep reading. Leah, not to be outdone. She's not bearing at this moment. Remember, God closed her womb. She turns to her handmaiden, Zilpha. And says, here, Jacob, have her. And the war of the womb intensifies. Two more sons come from Zilpha. Verse 9, Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, and she took her servant Zilpha and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And then Leah's servant Zilpha bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. And Leah's servant Zilpha bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I. For women have called me happy, and so she named him Asher. Now, Gad, that name means good fortune. Asher, that name means happy. And I think it's safe to say that both of these names are stabs at Sister Leah. Or, excuse me, Sister Rachel. Because here's what she's saying. Hey, Rachel, check the scoreboard, sister. It's Team Leah 6, Rachel 2. I'm still winning this thing. God's fortune is smiling on me. I've got more reason to be happy than you do. You see the digs taking place in the naming of these sons? By the way, this is a good point to stop and make an application about twin sins that will destroy our lives. Jealousy and envy. They destroyed this family right here. You know what Proverbs 14.30 says? A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones to rot. Envy is a silent killer. It can slither into our hearts. And once envy injects its poison into our soul, it will kill our love. It will kill our contentment. It will kill our peace. Listen to what Charles Swindoll said. There's a difference between envy and jealousy. 
He makes this beautifully known. He said, quote, Envy and jealousy are twin sisters with subtle differences. Envy, the more sophisticated of the two, is a painful and resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another. Envy is accompanied by a strong desire to possess what someone else has. On the other hand, jealousy wants to possess what is already has and is fearful it might be taken away. Jealousy is coarse and cruel. Envy is sneaky and subtle. Jealousy clutches and smothers. Envy is forever reaching, longing, squinting, thinking, and saying sinister insinuations. Now you say, Derek, this is an old story that happened hundreds and thousands of years ago. It doesn't really have much application for me. Do you think we struggle with envy and jealousy today in the human race? Let me ask you a question. What do you think is the leading cause of envy, jealousy, unhappiness, and depression in our society? Is it drugs? What do you think about crime? Maybe it's social injustice? Time Magazine published the results of a study. The name of the article was this. Is social media making me miserable? Here's what the article said. Quote, the more people consumed Facebook, Instagram, and other social media, the more likely they are to experience negative physical and mental health, greater levels of anxiety, and less overall satisfaction with life. Why? Here's the explanation. Social media lends itself easily to comparisons. Users see a friend's perfectly framed glamorous photo or selfie, a vacation vista, food, item, luxury, and compare themselves negatively based on those images. And people often see their life in comparison to that as boring, unfulfilled, empty, and they base their self-worth on likes, tweets, and followers. Ever been there before? (laughs) Huh? You think that it's making your soul better by spending time arguing with people on Facebook over politics? Friend, listen to me. It's not good for your soul. It's not good to be constantly trying to compare ourselves with everybody else. Rachel and Leah did that. And it tore the family apart. And the comparison battle that's raised between Leah and Rachel is so rampant in our media-saturated world today. Why? Because we're just as insecure. We're just as needy. We're just as shallow as these people in the Old Testament. Our hearts hadn't changed. Why? Because we all struggle with identity. Who am I? Am I valuable? Do people like me? Am I validated? And that's why we do social media (laughs) a lot of times. Oh, did they comment on what I wrote? Do they like my picture? I hope that they saw what I said on there. Friend, I'm telling you, that's a bad way to start living your life. We're just a little bit more technologically sophisticated than Rachel and Leah. They did it through a different way, but we do the same doggone things. Everybody's asking that question, who am I? And the only way you get that answer is you have to define yourself in terms of who God says you are, not what the culture says about you. Not about what I can do, but about what He's done for me already and who He says I am in Him. You think about how divided our world is right now. 
Can you remember a time, maybe even some of you who lived through the civil rights movement in the 1960s and so on, can you remember a time when our nation and the church has been so divided as it is now? God help us. We're divided over everything. Over this election. Over Black Lives Matters. Over whether we ought to wear a mask or not. Or whether I'm homeschooling my child or whether... We have argued and been divided and envied and hated and commented and fought with one another. Friend, it's the devil. The devil has got us so confused on all of these issues that we forget who we really are and what our true mission and purpose is. And we as the church need to wake up and realize what is being done in our midst. That the enemy is using these things to try and divert and destroy God's church just as this family was almost torn apart. Oh, my goodness. And so you see, not only the resentment of Rachel and you see the rejection of Leah, but notice this, the rivalry of sisters. You say, how could it get any worse, Derek? Old friend, just keep turning the page. Verse 14, the rivalry of sisters. The Bible says this, In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. And then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. When she said to her, It is a small matter what you have taken away my husband. Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Snarky. <laughs> Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. And so he lay with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. The competition between these two sisters gets worse and worse until we have this episode here of the mandrakes. What a bizarre, strange, and weird story. It's okay if you read the Bible and it shocks you as, I can't believe this is in there. You see this ugly, blighted heart of Rachel and Leah come to a head when they dispute over these mandrakes. Now what are these things? Mandrakes are bluish flowers in winter and they have yellowish plum-sized fruits in the summer. And the reason why these are mentioned in the text is because in ancient times, these mandrakes were called love apples. And they were thought to be an aphrodisiac, and a folklore belief rose up around them that they could cure barrenness. And so, when Leah's son comes in with these and Rachel sees them, ha! There's the solution to my problem right there. Give me those love apples. But these things aren't love apples, are they? They only bring more discord and fighting into Jacob's family. Now notice this. Rachel wants the mandrakes because she thinks if I get these things, they'll help me conceive. Leah sees them as uh-huh, a bargaining chip. And so these sisters strike a deal. Rachel says, look... Jacob's sleeping with me. You want a night with him? Let's trade for those mandrakes. And so she said, make an exchange for a night with Jacob. Have you ever heard of anything so messed up in your life? My goodness. 
And Rachel is so desperate to have a baby, she's willing to drink mandrake juice. I've never had it, but <laughs> doggone it. And Leah, Leah is so undesirable to Jacob that she, he has to be coerced to spend a night with her. And here's Jacob in the midst of all this. He's so henpecked, he's so spiritually immature that he lets his wives dictate where he's going to sleep. It's a mess. This is a royal dumpster fire family. You just thought your family was broken and messed up and had problems. Well, what happens? This whole plan backfires on Rachel. Instead of making her fruitful, it's Leah who conceives. And Leah has two more sons named Issachar and Zebulon and a daughter named Dinah. We won't take time to read that, but it's in the text. And that brings her total to seven children. Six sons and one daughter. And Leah may have won the baby battle, but notice the cost in the process. Her relationship with her sister is totally destroyed. And poor Rachel... She thinks if I get these mandrakes, she has more faith in fruit than she does Almighty God. These things end up turning into lemons. Notice what happens, verse 22. The Bible says, And then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son, and God has taken away my reproach, she said. And so she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add unto me another Son. So Rachel does get the son that she wanted, Joseph. And then later on, as we read down the road, she gives birth to another boy. His name will be Benjamin. And the great irony is that Rachel wanted this thing so bad, she wanted to be a mom so bad that when she does have the second son, Benjamin, she dies in childbirth. The thing that she thought would define her and give her respect and meaning in her life. So what do we take away from all this mess? Well, for Rachel, it's that all the striving cannot accomplish the supernatural work of God. The Lord only blessed Rachel when she stopped trying to manipulate the whole situation. And how many times, friends, do we resort to worldly ways to get what we want rather than to just trust and wait on God? Now, there's so many applications from this passage I could just spend forever, but I just boiled it down to one. What is the biggest lesson for all of us to take away from this? And it's this. Write it down. Let the one who created you be the one who defines you. This whole passage is about identity. These girls trying to be somebody else. Rachel could not bear children. And nothing she could do could change that. Leah couldn't get Jacob to love her. And nothing she could do would change that. And both of these women had to come to a point where they stopped striving for some cultural identity that women are respected and that women will get notice and love through childbearing. They had to throw that cultural identity off and realize that my identity has to come from God. Not to all the external things that they thought was going to give their life meaning and significance. And aren't we there today, friend? Our search for significance and security and satisfaction, it has to come from God. 
Not from a relationship. Not from a job. uh, Not from a 401k. Or not from Facebook followers. Or whatever it is you're trying to do to establish identity in your life. Who we are is ultimately defined by whose we are. And that identity is made new in Jesus Christ. Oh friend, can I just preach to you for a moment? The world uh, wants to label us on how we vote and the color of our skin and how much money we have and what background we've come from. But when you live for the world's approval, listen to me, you'll die by the world's rejection. I am not who the world says I am. I am who the great I am says that I am. And not the media, not the cancel culture, not my Facebook follower feed. It doesn't define who I am, friend. I'm born again. I'm redeemed. I'm blood-bought and I'm twice born. I'm spirit-filled and made new. I'm heaven-bound. I'm blessed and highly favored as a child of the King. Hey, God doesn't love me anymore or any less based on what I do or what I can't do because His love is unconditional. It's unlimited. It's undeserved. I don't get my self-worth from my net worth. My belonging to God, my stance in Jesus Christ won't change on November 4th no matter who gets elected or what's going on out in the street. I am a child of God and I'm going to rest my identity in that and that alone. You see, if you anchor yourself to something else out there in the world... For these girls, it was childbearing. If you anchor your identity to something else in the world, let me tell you, you're going to wake up one day and you're going to be disappointed with life. Broken and empty. Because ain't nothing in this world can fill that void. Let the One who created you define you. There's a story about a little boy who built him a sailboat. This little boy spent several weeks building this sailboat. Etched his name on the bottom of it once they got it painted and finished. It was a little windy day. He decided to take it down to the lake for the maiden voyage. So the little boy set the, the boat there on the edge. And he watched. Whoosh, big rush of wind came along and blew that boat out to the middle of the lake. He waded in fast. He tried to get in there and grab it, but the boat was gone. He went home crying. A few weeks later, a little boy was in town with his daddy, walking down Main Street, came to a second-hand store, and there in the window sat his little sailboat. Daddy, Daddy, that's my boat. That's... That's the boat I made and and I lost. I've got to go in and get it. So he walked in. Taking the boat off of the display. He tried to explain to the store owner. This is my boat. I made it. Look here. I got my name on it. This this is mine. And the store owner said, "But, but son, you got to pay for that. So the little boy went home. Determined. So he mowed grass. And he washed cars. And he did odd jobs to save up enough dollars and cents. Several weeks later, he went back to that second-hand store. And he laid his money down. 
And he said, I want my boat back. So finally the day came, he paid for that and walked out with it. And the, the store proprietor heard him say as he was holding up high the boat, walking out the door, he said, you're twice my boat. Because the first time I made you, and the second time I bought you. And friend, that's who I am in Jesus Christ. That's the hope of the gospel. I've been made by a heavenly Father. And I've been purchased and bought by the Son. I'm twice His. He made me. He bought me. And that's my identity. You don't have to live and die by somebody else's opinion or waste your life away trying to earn somebody's love. You already are loved. Just look at the cross. Look at what He paid for you. The cross is what redeems your past and shapes your future. And friend, that's the miracle of the gospel. That's the miracle of this whole story. You read it and you think, why is a twisted, sordid, messed up family like this in the Bible? Well, because through this, God is going to do something amazing. From Jacob will come the twelve tribes of Israel. And from Rachel, one son will be born named Joseph. Joseph will rescue his people during a time of drought. And then from Leah comes Judah. And from Judah is the tribe that will come the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so God used broken, dysfunctional, and sinful people to bring about the Savior of all mankind. But you say, Derek, why Leah? Why did God allow her to give birth to Judah and Judah would be the line from which Jesus Christ would come? Because what's Leah's life all about? Who is she? Rejected. She's the girl that nobody wanted. Daddy married her off. Jacob didn't love her. Her whole life is underscored by rejection. No wonder then that Jesus Christ can say He was a son of Leah because He came into His own and His own received Him not a man, a Savior that nobody wanted. The world hated and spit Him and crucified Him and killed Him. But friend, He was rejected so that we might be accepted into the family of God. That's the Gospel. And if my God can do that through a family of this depravity, what can He do with your life and my life? 